Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Join me in prayer as we continue, please. Our Father, this this is a good day for us to be reminded that you are our Father. And that statement rolls so easily off of our lips, and yet it is the most profound thing that we can say, that we can know, that we can embrace. Jesus himself said to his disciples, I go to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Even preparing his disciples for the fact that through his cross, through his triumph, through his resurrection, that his Father would become the Father of human beings in the way that he was Father to Jesus himself that men and women would find their own lives hidden with Christ in you, Father, by your Spirit, that we would become children in the most profound way, not children at a distance, not children in a boarding home someplace, but children in the Father's house, Children in the Father's house in such a way that we have been made to be your dwelling in the Spirit. An intimacy of love and communion that transcends anything that we know in this world. To be able to call our God Father is the most profound privilege that we can imagine. And I do pray as we consider that truth, not just in this hour, but in every day, in the lives that we live, that we would desire truly, sincerely, with all commitment and all zeal, to grow in our sonship, to grow in a true and a vital knowledge of our God who is our Father, to be brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ, heirs of all that he is heir to. Father, these are the things that will give wings to our discouragement, that will carry us through trials, that will bring joy in difficulty, that will cause our hearts to sing. These are the things that the psalmists look to as they pen these great hymns of praise. And they could only see dimly what you had purposed to accomplish for the human race and for your creation in the Messiah who was longed for, who was seen dimly at a distance. But their hearts were full and they trusted their God who is faithful And they understood that your design for your creation would be realized. How much more ought we to live lives of praise and celebration? How much more ought our lives be a hymn of praise? Songs of gratitude, songs of exultation to our Father. So, Father, as we continue our worship, I pray that you will attend to our thoughts and our minds and that you will, by your spirit, give us a joy and rejoicing full of glory, full of hope, full of gratitude. Lead us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Well, last week we began our consideration of the Psalms, and and last week was basically just some initial thoughts about the the genre of the Psalms, the fact that they are composed as poetry, how that affects the way that we need to think about them, interact with them. We considered some features of Hebrew poetry in particular, and this morning I want to progress along those lines uh, with uh, kind of an overview, issues of structure, issues of authorship, issues of themes, various categories. And again, my intent in this is not to go through all of the Psalms verse by verse, each Psalm, but to, in a sense, grind a set of lenses for us, to develop a sense of uh, kind of thematic emphases and orientations that we would engage with the Psalms in a way that the ancients engage with them, that they would become, as it were, a a means of our right sort of worship. Many people don't spend much time in the Psalms. Uh, Many people spend time in the Psalms, but purely as a matter of private personal devotions. And in the end, in order for us to profit from the Psalms properly, we have to look at them and own them through the lens of their actual function and and what it is that they reveal and how it is that they reveal what they reveal. They have to become for us, first and foremost, what they were uh, to Israel's own life and faith. And so that's my hope, that we will build a, a grid through which we can read and think about the Psalms and ultimately profit from them and have them become woven into our own worship individually, but also corporately as the people of God. So as a starting point this morning, I think many of us understand this, but the Psalms consist of a collection, what we call the canonical Psalms, uh, consist of a collection of 150 separate songs. These psalms were composed as musical songs intended to be sung, often accompanied by instruments. To the extent that they were a part of Israel's worship, they were often uh, sung by Levites. Remember, the Levites were responsible for the whole ministration of the tabernacle, later the temple, Israel's worship corporately. And the Levites were the singers, amongst the Levites were chosen singers and musicians who would play instruments and accompany the singing of these psalms. But they were written as songs of praise, musical songs. And so eventually, over time, all of these individual writings were collated and put together in this uh, collection that we call the psalms and assigned the title Sefer Tehalim, Songs of Praise. Songs of Praise, or the Book of Praises. Sefer Tehalim, the Book of Praises. And that title that the Jews gave to the Psalms underscores that they, again, were written as songs of praise. They have God very specifically as their object, but God in a specific way. Not God as just G-O-D, what we think he is, who we think he is in relation to us, what he can do for us, how he can help us. God as imagined in our own minds. But the God who is, the God who is revealed throughout the salvation history in relation to Israel. The God who is disclosed and praised and embraced and implored in this collection of writings that we call the Psalms. That centrality of that God and his, his uh, intent for the world is the perspective through which we understand all of the themes, all of the emphases, all of the concerns that are raised in the Psalms. And I hope this will become clear as we continue to move through these in the, in the weeks and the months ahead. With respect to structure and authorship, Uh, The first thing is the most general thing, which is that the Psalms are organized in five books. There are five books. The first two and the last, the fifth, are are longer. The the third and the fourth book uh, of Psalms are very short, relatively speaking. The first book runs from Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. 
primarily psalms of David, psalms that are ascribed to David. And those psalms tend to be, for that reason, deeply personal. They are psalms of David that deal with his own life with God, his own struggles, his distresses. Book two runs from Psalm 42 through 72. That also contains uh, psalms ascribed to David, but it also introduces psalms by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. Those psalms run from, uh, well, 42 and then 44 through 49. And book two ends with one of Solomon's two psalms. Solomon penned two psalms. But it ends with Psalm 72, which is Solomon's psalm dealing with God's ideal king. Solomon, who is king in Israel, writes from the vantage point of what does God's ideal king look like? You know, particularly, what is it would it be like for me to function rightly as God's king, but ultimately looking to God's ideal king, who would be his, God's son, the one who would reign in God's name under God's kingship, God as the great king. And book two also then introduces, and be, or at least begins to highlight, the corporate dimension of the Psalms, the corporate dimension of its worship. Because the sons of Korah were Levites, and we'll see they were, uh, among, they were gatekeepers, but they were also amongst the sons of Korah, were men who were raised up to be singers in Israel. And so the psalms that they wrote were oriented towards Israel's worship. And they tend to have a more corporate, collective uh, emphasis and orientation. Book three is Psalm 73 through 89. Has a lot of Asaph's psalms. Asaph penned several psalms. And, and book three begins to take on a little darker tone. It deals with the unfaithfulness of the nation, the judgment that has come upon them, issues of calamity, issues of unfaithfulness, a darker sense in the sense of failure of the nation, failure of its covenant relationship with God. There are also psalms in book three uh, from the sons of Korah, David, and then also the, psalm, the one psalm from Ethan is in book three. Book four is also a shorter book. It's Psalms 90 through 106. It begins with Moses' psalm, Psalm 90. Moses has a psalm in the Psalms. The, the composition of the Psalms spanned from the time of Moses at the time of the exodus of Israel out of Egypt all the way past the Babylonian captivity into the Second Temple period, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, as I said last time. So the Psalms were composed over a period of about a thousand years, beginning with Moses going all the way up into the Second Temple period after the return from exile under the Babylonians. But Moses' psalm is Psalm 90, and it begins Book 4. Most of the psalms in Book 4 are anonymous. But in many ways, Book 4 begins to answer the challenges or the quandary, the problems addressed in Book 3. As I said, Book 3 speaks to Israel's circumstance with God, the calamity, the judgment that has come upon them because of their unfaithfulness. And book four begins to speak to that, particularly in terms of the fact that God is the great king. And just as he has brought judgment, he will ultimately restore. His purposes will stand. Calamity will not be the last word. And then finally, book five finishes out the book of the Psalms, 107 through 150. Many of these are also Psalms of David. The, the Psalms begin with a whole section of David's Psalms. They end with a section of David's Psalms. 
but not inappropriately, given that these psalms are songs of praise. The last book, book five, also has a kind of exultant, climactic sort of tone to it. Very celebratory, very exultant. And each of these books ends in the way in which the Jews collated them and sectioned them into books. Each of these five books ends with a high note of praise, proclaiming the blessedness of Israel's God. So if you look at, um, and we'll just look at these very quickly, if you look at Psalm 41, which ends book one, It ends in this way, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. That Hebrew term amen is a, is a statement of verity, a statement of surety, a statement of yes, it is true, yes, it is so. Yahweh is blessed from everlasting to everlasting, the one who is the God of Israel, And then you look at 72, which finishes book two, Psalm 72 at the end. Blessed be Yahweh, who is God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You see, these these books, so to speak, these sections in the Psalms, end on this high point of the blessedness of God. In what sense is he blessed? He's the God of Israel, but as the God of Israel, his purposes in and through Israel are for the sake of the whole world, ultimately for the sake of his creation. The design and the end and the expectation that his glory will fill the whole earth. Then you go to the end of the next book, book three, Psalm 89. It ends in this way, blessed be Yahweh forever, amen and amen. Same sort of pattern. And then Psalm 106, which ends book four. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then as you come to the end of book five, this is the climactic. Again, each of these books ends on a high note of praise, declaring the blessedness of God because he is this God. He is the God of Israel. He is the God who is working his purposes on behalf of the whole world. And then Psalm 150, which brings this climactic, as I said, book five has its own kind of ascent in the sense of being exultant and having this climax in praising and acknowledging this God who has revealed himself and worked in this way. And Psalm 150 ends, it brings all of that praise together in this climactic proclamation This is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his deeds, his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Alleluia. So you see this pattern, this overall pattern in the Psalms of the the God-centeredness of the Psalms, but in a specific way. We live in a time where you have lots and lots of people who believe in God, but what sort of God is he? Who is this God? Well, he's like this, he's like that, whatever. But the knowledge of the God of the Bible, this God who's revealed himself in this way through these works according to these purposes, Ultimately, as he finds his full revelation, his full embodiment, his full disclosure in Christ himself, that's the God that the Psalms extol. That's the God that the Psalms have at their center. That's the God that they sing the praises of. 
So five books broken down in that way. In terms of where did this structure come from, nobody really knows for sure. But the oldest existing copies of the Psalms that we have go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, about 100 BC, right in that area. And there are, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these divisions found there in those documents. So at the very least, this structuring of the Psalms was in place at the time that Jesus came into the world. Beyond that, we don't know how far back these Psalms were collated, how they decided on these 150, how they were broken down, how they were organized in this particular way, we don't know. But we know that this structure was in place by the time Jesus came into the world. And the other thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that amongst them, and I think everybody knows what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, I don't want to go into a lot of elaboration on that, but they were a bunch of manuscripts that were found in the Dead Sea area shortly after World War II is when they first began to be discovered. And they pushed back the, the manuscript witness to Old Testament documents by about a thousand years or more. Prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Old Testament manuscripts we had were about 9th or 10th century now the Dead Sea Scrolls push it back from like 100 to 250 BC, thereabouts. And they were manuscripts that were um, copied and preserved and used by uh, the community around the Dead Sea, often associated with the Essenes, a group of Jewish people who had forsaken Jerusalem in the temple because of its corruption. But a very messianic eschatological community waiting for God to raise up his Messiah and bring renewal and restoration. But amongst the Dead Sea documents were uh, more than 30 copies of all or part of the Psalms, which shows how much the Psalms were central to their own worship, their own sense of themselves, their sense of who this God of Israel was, and even their own expectation and hope that he would arise and he would put all things right in connection with his Messiah. So certainly by that time, the Psalms were very much woven into uh, Israel's life. And as I said, it's uncontested how the Psalms were at the heart of Israel's corporate worship throughout the Second Temple period, up to the point of the destruction of the Temple in 70 A.D., in terms of authorship, half of the 150 psalms are ascribed to David. 73 carry that ascription, a psalm of David, or you know, a, a, a writing by David. Two of them are identified in the New Testament as of David, though they're not ascribed that way in the psalm itself. And that's Psalm 2 and Psalm 95. Psalm 2 in the Acts is ascribed to David. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing, right? In connection with the coming of the Messiah. And then as we saw in the book of Hebrews, uh, Psalm 95 is ascribed to David as well. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah in the day of trial in the wilderness. Psalm 95. And the author of Hebrews ascribes that to David. So 75 psalms, biblically, half of the psalms are, are attributed to David. David as Israel's great king, poet, musician, and worship leader. Often because we connect David so much with the kingship, and particularly messianically, the kingship, David is the great king of Israel, the prototypical king, the one whose kingship anticipates the Messiah, as God's king, we tend to overlook or, or diminish this idea of David as the worship leader of Israel. But his, his leading of Israel's worship, his standing at the head of Israel's worship as their king, as their representative, was as significant as his rule over the nation. If he administered Yahweh's rule over the nation of Israel, he also gathered up the people's praises and delivered them back to God. He served both functions. 
David, and we won't, I won't look at all this today. This is in the notes if you want to look through these reference. But David was the one when he assumed the kingship, even in anticipation of building the temple, which Solomon ultimately did. David appointed from amongst the Levites uh, singers and musicians. David also made provision for the instruments that they would play and saw to it that those instruments were made and made available. David himself was a musician. Remember, it was his playing of of the harp that would calm Saul when he had his fits of rage before David took the throne. David was a musician. He was a singer. He was a composer. And he provided for Israel's corporate worship as one who actually made their instruments through his resource and also appointed the singers for the nation. And that's, I think, very important even messianically because as much as we want to focus on David's, you know, kind of messianic typological significance in terms of his kingship, David was a man after God's own heart and he reigned in God's name, but he was a worshiper of God. And he led out the worship of God's covenant people. And that very much is, is important to how he was a prototype of the Messiah himself. Jesus is the preeminent worshiper of God, the worshiper of the Father. And the one in whom human beings become worshipers. It is out of his own perfect devotion as God's true son that that messianic ruler would lead the covenant household in their devotion and in their worship, first by his own example, but then by his instruction and his provision. And so for David to really be an accurate prototype of Yahweh's Messiah King, he needed to be the preeminent worshiper of God and the one through whom the people became worshipers. And you see that very much in David. So, To me, it's significant that half of the Psalms are ascribed to him. If they are Israel's songbook, to have David at the forefront is very important, even in thinking about their significance. In terms of other authors, uh, the next one that we can note is Asaph. There are about 12 Psalms that are ascribed to him. Asaph was also a Levite. And he was one of the choir leaders or the song leaders, the worship leaders that David appointed. So in these other men, you know, Asaph, uh, the sons of Korah, Haman, Ethan, you see men who were appointed by David as singers and as musicians. And so again, their psalms tend to be more corporately oriented. They're more oriented collectively towards Israel's worship of God. They have that sense to them. As I said, the sons of Korah were also Levites, descendants of the man Korah. And I won't belabor this, but if you recall back to number 16, Korah was the Levite who led the rebellion against Moses and Aaron, the rebellion of Korah, who said, who are you to take this authority to yourself? We are all Levites. We are all Israelites. We are all equally holy to the Lord. But later on, descendants of Korah were followers of David. They were loyal men to David when he was fleeing from Saul. And when he took the kingship, he appointed these descendants of Korah as gatekeepers in God's sanctuary. And as I said, even assigned some of them to be singers and musicians uh, leading Israel's worship. Same also with Heman and Ethan each of whom have uh, one psalm attributed to them. So all of these individuals that are named as authors of the psalms played a central role in Israel's worship. You say, well, what about Moses and Solomon? They really didn't play that sort of a role, but they were at the very center of Israel's relationship with God, right? Israel's worship was in and through Moses in that early period. And you see even Solomon, in a sense, replicating David's role as 
as ruler and leader of Israel's worship, when you see his dedicating of the temple and all of this massive festival of sacrifice and praise that runs on for days with Solomon orchestrating all of that. So they too were at the center of Israel's relationship with God and his praise of God. And it was appropriate that they would be involved in penning the psalm, you know, have a role in penning the songs of worship that were uh, Israel's at the center of its worship. When we consider then all the psalms in terms of their subject matter, what are the psalms really about? Well, they're about all sorts of things. But at the center of them, all of them reflect... And all of them speak to Israel's all-encompassing relationship with God. I say all-encompassing. Again, in our culture, we tend to think, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I have this thing called a relationship with God. But for the most part, I live my life. I do my thing. I have my priorities. I have my interests. I call upon God when I need something, whatever it happens to be. But we very much kind of live independent lives. But Israel understood that everything about its life was bound up in this covenant relationship with God. Israel was covenant son. So everything they did, everything they thought, everything they were about, the clothes that they wore, the way they planted their crops, everything was defined by this principle of sonship. And the Psalms have that relationship between God and Israel at their very Center. So even as the Psalms lay out issues of obligation, of responsibility, of faithfulness, of unfaithfulness, it's all centered in that, that reality of relationship with God, Israel as the Son of God. And that meant that Israel, above all else, was to be a worshiping people, wholly devoted to the Lord their God. Remember the Shema. The hero Israel, the Shema, was the central defining prayer of Israel. Hero Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord, he is God. And you shall love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of their life was to be devoted to him. The Psalms reflect and express, therefore, all of the dynamics, the dimensions, the aspects, the impediments, the failures, the challenges, and the glory of that relationship, the glory of the worship of God. And that's the way in which they address and deal with all of these circumstances and and passions and, and emotions of life all in relation to God. And they have at their center praise and thanksgiving, supplication, all of these things that we find in the Psalms and that we can so easily relate to. As I said last time, uh, Plantinga says that the Psalms give us a voice when we don't have our own voice. When we need a voice other than our own, the Psalms give us that voice. They, they hit us really in the marrow of our being because they hit us at the point of our, our very humanness and certainly in relation to God. In general terms, all of the Psalms reflect the fact of Yahweh's kingship. He is the great king. He is the Lord over all the earth. If you look at Psalm 47... Now, I tried to pick examples of this, but ones that, were sh- that are short that we can get through. Psalm 47 says, Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For Yahweh, most high, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us, us, Israel, nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations, he sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And as I've said before, Israel's confession of the Lord our God, he is one, wasn't a statement about the internal nature of God. It was a statement about the fact that the God of Israel is the God of all creation. He's the God of the nations. He's the God of the world. He's the God of the universe. 
The God of Israel is the God who is the God of all things, and his purposes in and through us are on behalf of all the world. So all of the Psalms focus on Yahweh's kingship, and within that as a subset, some of the Psalms focus on Jerusalem, the songs of Zion. Jerusalem as the seat of God's kingship, his throne, the place where his exaltation in heaven meets the earth. Remember, we've talked about how the Ark of the Covenant well, it was regarded as the footstool of God's feet. He's enthroned in heaven, his feet are on the earth. And it was in that Holy of Holies, the sanctuary on Mount Zion, that God was present and exercising his rule in the world. So the kingship of God rightly points to the significance of Zion, the place where God is encountered. Others, as another subset, focus on the Son King, God's human king, the one who administers God's rule over Israel and ultimately on behalf of all the nations. And so the psalms that deal with the kingship, the human kingship, are are often um, at least allude to or have as as a backdrop David himself if they don't speak to him directly. Because David was the epitomizing king the one in whom God's rule in the earth was most preeminently expressed, the great prototype of the Messiah himself. Others of the Psalms have more of an uh, an individual and a personal emphasis, but always, again, set within the same defining framework. They have their premise, they have their meaning in the fact of God's lordship and his covenant faithfulness and promises to Israel in view of his purpose for the creation. It's not just, here I am, God, here are my problems, meet my problems, though we tend to read the Psalms in that way. They are personal, they are individual sometimes, but always set within that context of of an Israelite's understanding or David's understanding of how he fit into the purposes of God for the world. And that's the sense, then, most importantly, how we see that the Psalms are thoroughly messianic. There are probably at least 14 Psalms that we think are directly, you know, messianic, speaking to the Messiah himself. But the entire Psalter, all of the Psalms are messianic in the sense in which we've been describing. Because they deal with Israel's sonship and God's purposes for the world through Israel, which would ultimately have their realization in Jesus himself. And for that reason, it's not surprising that we find that the Psalms are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book other than Isaiah. The Psalms are most cited or alluded to in the New Testament more than any Old Testament writing. They are so thoroughly messianic. As I mentioned before, they were at the center of Israel's worship, and I just want to point out a couple ways in which that was true. Uh, one of it, uh, within the Mishnah, the, the kind of written compilation of Israel's oral traditions, it, it stated that there was a psalm read every day as a part of the daily worship. The same psalm read every Monday, the same psalm read every Tuesday, every Wednesday. The daily worship had the reading of a psalm. Those psalms are 24, 48, 82, 94, 81, 93, and then a psalm of the Sabbath, Psalm 92. If you look in your Bible, it'll probably have that heading, a Sabbath psalm. And 92 was what was read on the Sabbath. Now, all this is in the notes, so you don't have to write it all down. I mentioned before the songs of ascent. They are psalms that start at a low point and and build and build and build to a climax in different ways, but always at a low point of discouragement or need or doubt or whatever and building to a climax of exaltation in God. And the songs of ascent, the psalms of ascent, called songs of ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, were read during the Feast of Booths in the fall. It was a pilgrim feast where all the males in Israel were to go up to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a high point. You would go up to Jerusalem. 
And as part of that ascent to Mount Zion, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. You also have the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118, the Hallel, the praises. Alleluia means praise Yahweh. But the Hallels, the songs of praise, 113 through 118, were read at all three of the pilgrim feasts, Pentecost, Passover, and Booths. Remember, there were three times a year that Israel was charged to go up to Jerusalem to worship God. Passover, 50 days later, Pentecost, they would stay in Jerusalem. But then in the fall, with the Feast of Booths, and the Hallel was read as a part of those feasts as one unit, 113 through 118, read as one unit. So we should be looking at those psalms in that same way. We should try reading 113 to 118 together as a unit. That's how Israel read them. And then finally today, just to talk about some categories of the psalms, and different scholars, different commentators pull out different general categories, but the ones I'm going to give you, I think, kind of encompass the psalms in terms of their general categories, and these do overlap. It's not this psalm is just this category, this psalm is just that category. There's an overlap. But these are the general ways in which the psalms would fall out. Perhaps the most common or predominant uh, category of the psalms are the songs of lament or lamentation. Mourning grieving, agonizing. A lot of the lament psalms are psalms of David. David suffered greatly before he came to the throne. He suffered persecution. Remember, David was anointed by Samuel as God's king, but Saul continued to hold the throne for many years. And that period of suffering unjustly as the anointed king of Israel That suffering, that difficulty, that injustice, that sense of David entrusting himself to God in spite of his suffering, that's very much at the heart of of a lot of these psalms of lament. And it's true whether it's David, it's true whether it's the Levites. Again, the one may tend to be more personal, the other perhaps more, um, more corporate in the way it works itself out. Uh, Let's just look at Psalm 31. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to give you a sense of this starting out. This is David, Psalm 31. In you, O Yahweh, have I taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, and this is the idea that God will do right. He will keep his word. He will be faithful to his purposes, to his promises. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of strength to me, a stronghold to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you will lead and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. You are my strength. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, O God of truth. Echoes of even Jesus messianic entrustment of himself to the father right if you look at psalm 44 this is a psalm of the sons of korah so again it has more of a corporate quality to it in its lament O God, we have, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old, how with your own hand you drove out the nations. You planted them in the land, is in your sanctuary land is the idea. You afflicted the peoples who were oppressing them. You spread the people abroad throughout the land. By their own sword, they did not possess the land. Their own arm did not deliver them. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your presence that you favored them. Verse 9, but yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. 
We do not go out with our armies. You have caused us to turn back from the adversary. Those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You've given us as sheep to be eaten, scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people cheaply. You've not profited by their sale. In other words, you haven't done this to gain profit for yourself. You've done this because of us. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing, a derision to those among us. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? He knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Romans 8. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction, our oppression? Our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. And again, loving kindness is the idea of faithfulness to the covenant. You see, they're crying out to God in a lament, but saying, rise up and be faithful to the relationship with us that you've established. Rise up and deliver us according to your own commitment. Not because we deserve it, but because you are faithful to your purposes. You are faithful to us as your covenant people. A second classification of Psalms, and again, this is woven throughout the Psalms. It's not just a discrete category, but it's an important uh, aspect of, of the Psalms. And that's this idea of thanksgiving expressing joy and gratitude to God for his benefits of faithfulness, mercy, forgiveness, but always in terms of the covenant relationship. The psalmists aren't praising God because he put food on their table per se, or because you know he gave them a wife or a husband or whatever it happens to be. It's thanksgiving to God for, again, being faithful and providing for his people according to his purposes. For the sake of time, I won't look at any of these, but again, they will be in the notes. Um, Another main theme woven in very close to Thanksgiving is this idea of praise. But these praise psalms, the ones that focus on praise, always are focused on the God who is and how he is, And I know I keep saying this over and over and over again, but it's important to get this in our heads. It's praising God for who he is and how he shows himself to be faithful to himself, to his promises, to his purposes. These become center, front and center in Psalms 145 through 150. The climax of the psalms are these psalms of praise. And when you go and you read them, you see how the psalmists are praising God and in what arena, with what mindset they are praising him. Another important category of the psalms are the ones that that rehearse the salvation history, psalms that rehearse Israel's history with God. And sometimes they have a lament quality to them. Because they say, God, you did this. You brought us out of Egypt. You called us in Abraham. You brought us through the wilderness. You fed us. You did this. You brought us into the land. You secured us. You established us. But we sinned against you. We failed you. And now all of this has come upon us. But a a rehearsing of Israel's own life with God. Their sense of who they were. How they got into this place. And their hope for the future. Calling, blessings, failure, circumstance, and hope, all tied to Israel's covenant life with God. Uh, Psalm 106 is a good example of that. Psalm 78. Another classification or category are royal psalms, psalms that have the kingship at their center, ultimately God's kingship. He's the great king. But as I said, a lot of them will focus on the human kingship as an extension of God's own kingship, the way in which God exercises his kingship in the world. And as I said, many of those are Davidic. David is the epitomizing king. And not surprisingly, that category of psalms are also uh, tend to be amongst the psalms more explicitly messianic. You can look at Psalm 45. 
a song celebrating the king's marriage, and yet at the center of that is Yahweh's kingship. So another category that I've already mentioned are the psalms that are called the Songs of Zion. Psalms that, in a sense, show jealousy and zeal and devotion to Jerusalem. Not because it's a city, not because it sits in the Middle East, but as the city of the great God, the place of God's habitation, where God is encountered, where God is worshipped. If you look at Psalm 84, it begins, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and yearned for the courts of Yahweh. Yahweh, again, being God's covenant name, who he was to Israel the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird there has also found a dwelling place. The sons of Korah, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah, but they say even the birds find refuge, a home in your sanctuary. The swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. Their early rain covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. A song of Zion. But the reason why Zion is exalted and precious is because of its relationship to the Lord who dwells there. And it's the place of encounter. And then the last one I want to mention today is this idea of imprecation or imprecatory psalms, big word. But what it really means, and we'll spend some time dealing with these because I think a lot of people stumble over them, but the imprecatory psalms are the psalms where the psalmist pleads with God to arise and to judge his enemies. God, deal with these people who are coming against me. Many of these are psalms of David as well. They're pleas to God for him to arise and to judge. But the important point in that is that they always come from the perspective, the psalmist's perspective, that his enemies are Yahweh's enemies. It's not, God, I'm tired of these people bugging me. My boss isn't giving me a raise. You know, arise and judge these people that aren't being fair to me. The imprecatory psalms are really giving voice to Yahweh's own intent to deal with all that opposes him. So this isn't just personal, God, get, get back at the, you know, deal with the people that are driving me crazy. Particularly, we see this in the imprecatory psalms associated with David. He viewed his adversaries And he viewed his suffering at the hands of his adversaries through the lens of his own calling and his own role in God's purposes. As I said before, a lot of his psalms of lament are when he's fleeing from Saul, when he's being oppressed, when he's, and all of this when he's carrying the anointing of God for the kingship, but he's waiting for that day to come. So let me just give you all uh, some homework for this week, if I might. And this isn't just for this week. But what do we do with all of this? Okay, this is all introductory stuff. But what do we do with this? Well, I want to challenge us, first of all, to start reading the Psalms. Start this week reading through the Psalms with these foundational considerations in mind. 
the things that we've talked about today, put them on as a pair of glasses and start reading the Psalms. Start reading through the Psalms through that lens. And look for patterns within the books. As I even kind of described in general terms, these five books... And there's a reason that the, that the, the Jews collated certain ser- psalms together. Some of them belong together. Like I said, the Songs of Ascent, the Hallel, they belong together. So as you're reading through them, begin to look for, intentionally try to find patterns within the books, as well as within the structure and the content of even the individual psalms. See how they're grouped. Why are they grouped that way? And then also importantly, read them within the larger context of the salvation history. In other words, these are psalms, songs of praise written by Jewish individuals in the time and the circumstance in which they lived. They're not just words of God dripped out of heaven and put on a page. They have a historical and a human and an Israelite context. And so we need to read them through that lens or that, that context of the salvation history. How each of the Psalms is set within, reflects and gives voice to God's purposes for the world in and through Israel. That's at the heart of the Psalms. That's how this God wants you to see him. And then lastly, consider how the themes and emphases that you discover in the Psalms point towards, speak to this coming Messiah. Jesus said, all the scripture testifies of him. How is that true? How is it true that all the scriptures testify of him? How do the Psalms testify of him? How does any given individual Psalm testify of him? How are these Psalms thoroughly messianic? It's important, very important, because this manner of testifying of Jesus is fundamental to how the Old Testament builds his case for him. If we're going to answer the question, how do all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, how do all of the scriptures testify of Jesus, then we have to, again, begin to look at the way in which they build this case. It's not just a bunch of proof text verses. It's an organic building of the case for this one who is to come, in whom God will become true, in whom Israel will become Israel, in whom the world will attain to the destiny for which God created it. So that perspective, that way of reading the Psalms will allow them to actually become properly personal to us, to our personal worship, and even to our corporate worship. If the goal of this series, as I said, is that the Psalms would be woven more into our worship, individually, but certainly corporately, they can only really become worshipful as we engage with them properly. And even in our private personal devotions, in our private personal worship, if we simply take them as things written to us personally in the 21st century and we don't appropriate them through the context in which they are written and the things that they speak to, then we won't profit from them in the way they're intended. And I hope that makes sense to everybody. So that's a discipline. You know, often people say to me, I don't know where to start reading in the Bible. Where should I start? What should I do? It's a big book. It's confusing. It's, you know, kind of overwhelming. Well, this is a way to start. And the Psalms are not meant to just be read through and breezed over. They're meant to be chewed on. They're meant to be prayed. They're meant to be lived into. They're meant to be meditated on. And we're going to see the way the Psalms begin next time in that very way. The man who meditates on Yahweh's Torah day and night is like a tree planted by the streams of water. Let's close in prayer. Father, I know it's a lot of information. I suppose it might feel a little bit overwhelming, but really these are very simple things and they certainly fit together in a simple way. But they are, they are the framework. They are the, the, the way in which you intend us to relate to you, to come to you to perceive you, to worship you. And how it is that we can see that in the face 
of Jesus our Lord, we see the glory of our God. I pray that you would nourish in us hearts of worship, hearts of devotion, not hearts of utility, not hearts of complacency, but that we would become truly a worshiping people, those who pray without ceasing, because in all things, at all times, in all circumstances, our hearts and our minds are bound over to our God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one who has become yes and amen to us in Jesus our Lord, the one in whom our lives are hidden by your Spirit. Father, help us to be worshipers indeed. And may these psalms be instrumental in nurturing our knowledge, our faith, our devotion, our joy. Even informing our complaint as we agonize, as we struggle, as we have doubts and fears and insecurities, as we seek your face and we don't understand and we're hurting and life is difficult. I pray that even in that imploring of you, even in that crying out to you, that we would do so according to the mind and the heart that we see presented in these psalms. So bless these saints, bless them in their labors, bless each of us as we seek to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head, and may we be faithful in that endeavor with one another. That as always we pray, Christ would be exalted in his church and through the church in the world. Amen.